Gabriel Talk Podcast listener, the throne speech, it's the first of Danielle Smith's tenure as premier since winning that election back in May, since a pretty clear idea of what Albertans can expect from the provincial government over the next while. Long story short, more fighting with Ottawa. We're going to get into the details that matter most to you in this episode. Plus, we're going to check in with Yaniv Yakov who's been desperately searching for his family, awaiting word on their well-being after they were kidnapped by Hamas more than three weeks ago. And Justin Ling, the independent investigative journalist, says we should be taking lessons from the American invasion of Iraq and applying them to what's going on in Israel and Gaza. All of that to come in this episode of Real Talk. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to this October 31st edition of Real Talk. We're covering a lot of ground today. It's the morning after the throne speech. This is the first time that uh, MLAs, that uh, Daniel Smith's government, for that matter, has sat in the Alberta legislature since the election at the end of May. And everybody was wondering, what would that throne speech contain? What would it be all about? What would be the tone of it? What would be the message that Premier Smith and her government would send, not just to Albertans, but to the rest of Canada? We're going to dig into that in just a second. We're also going to speak with a man who's joining us live from Israel, his brother, his brother's girlfriend, uh, his brother's two sons kidnapped about three and a half weeks ago. Still no word. You can imagine how they're feeling. We'll hear their story, including, if you're watching us on YouTube, a remarkable video that Yaniv Yakov has shared with us that we believe shows, or he said that at least this is the video that they saw that gave them the confidence that how, you know, helped them understand exactly what happened. He says, when we saw this video, that's when we knew they had been kidnapped. It's a propaganda video released by Hamas. You've got to see it to believe it. That's coming up. And then freelance journalist Justin Ling. You probably know he's been on the show before his Substack Bug-Eyed and Shameless, a popular one. He has a piece, a long-form piece that looks back to the United States' involvement in Iraq. Then he talks about why you can't bomb your way to safety. It's an interesting perspective uh, based on the personal story of David Petraeus. You remember the American military commander. Justin's going to join us coming up before this show wraps. This episode of Real Talk is presented by Danatech. And we wanted to let you know right now, if you're in the industry or an industry that requires safety training for your team, you're going to want to make sure that you check out Danatech.com right now. If you want to get your team's industry safety best training, if you're looking for the best training in the entire industry, Danatech.com needs to be your choice. Why? Because they've been Alberta's safety training leader for more than 30 years. Their courses are designed by experts with real on-the-job experience so the courses actually make a difference on your job site which is significant save lost time injuries stay compliant with changing regulations save money on training with Danatech the big companies across Canada are using Danatech's Wemis, TDG electrical and lifting device courses for good reason Plus, they've got a catalog of more than 150 courses across all industries. Today's a great day to visit Danatech.com to check out their courses and find out more about bulk discounts. 
Well, we were nerding out here in the Real Talk studio uh, yesterday, Johnny. We uh, threw on the <laughs> yeah. throne speech. We ordered some pizza, and we we settled in to see what uh, the premier would have to say. Yeah. Uh, the government would have to say via the lieutenant governor, Sama Lakani, who of course uh, appears as the king's representative mm-hmm. in the Alberta legislature and reads the speech from the throne. So we we've pulled a few moments mm-hmm. uh, from that throne speech, and then we'll dig into it. I'm curious to see what our audience is going to have to say in our Me live chat well. on YouTube. YouTube today. I mean, they, people were going off on X with all their opinions. Uh, yeah, I will say there ain't no party like a throne speech party in yeah. the Real Talk Studio. We really here, did right? it up. We, we got the drinks going. We had it on all the TVs. <laughs> but uh, I will say, I'll leave everyone's opinion to it. But number one, I will say she's a very good speaker. Yeah, she's Who, very, very canny, of course. Yeah, but it's kind of it's kind of funny because uh, we were wondering this with a few of the folks that were in here going, I wonder what it's like for the lieutenant governor, and she's certainly not the first one in this position mm-hmm. that, that they're reading. The message from the government. Yeah. They're not. This isn't their speech. And no. so I was kind of. I always study it's a script. I, I study like uh, I, I study facial expressions, things like that. But but of course, a good lieutenant governor and 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 uh, you know her honor, uh, like Hanny certainly qualifies, uh, is stoic. Uh, yeah. you, you, you don't perceive any uh, a, a smirk or a smile no when she emotion. sees something she likes. Mm-hmm. No eye rolling if there's something she doesn't mm-hmm. like. Uh, of course, it's filled with pomp and circumstance and tradition, and there was a lot going on yesterday. But let's get to the meat of it. Uh, here are a few moments that, that we think really jumped out, including right out of the gates. Uh, Johnny, we'll go with that first clip. This, yeah. is, this is kind of the Alberta government setting the tone not just not just for the throne speech not just for that that moment in time that people are paying attention to but for this legislative session and, and arguably for this mandate you know you could say for the next four years this is uh, the throne speech version of saying hey Ottawa brace yourself for a fight Alberta's government will not permit the federal government to inflict these destructive policies on the people of Alberta. If the federal government continues down its current path, Alberta's government will, over the coming months, introduce several motions under the Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, detailing provincial initiatives and legislation necessary to protect Albertans from these unconstitutional and harmful policies. It is the Alberta government's position that every Albertan must have access to affordable and reliable electricity, no matter the weather or time of day, and this government will not permit misguided federal policies to risk the safety and prosperity of Albertans. Further, it is the Alberta government's position that our world will have little hope of meaningfully reducing carbon emissions without Alberta multiplying its natural gas and other energy exports to Asia and other jurisdictions to replace the world's use of coal, wood, and other high-emitting sources for energy. The world needs more Alberta energy, not less. And Alberta's government 
intends to empower Albertans to deliver it. I like that. So talking about the clean energy plan, uh, and what I say by I like that is that this is a clear indicator of where this government's going. And this isn't sort of obfuscated with a bunch of meaningless padded language. This is the Alberta government calling Ottawa's policies. You heard it there on clean electricity. You know, you've, you've heard the federal environment minister, Stephen Gilbo on this show talking about it. You've heard Alberta's uh, minister, Rebecca Schultz talking about their perspective on this. And, and premier Danielle Smith will be joining us in studio tomorrow. And we'll get into it as well. The feds want to see Alberta on a net zero electricity grid by 2035. Alberta says we're on our way there. We intend to get there by 2050. Pretty big discrepancy on pacing. And so through this throne speech, the government is saying, number one, expect a fight on that. There was also a lot of talk about taxes and there was a lot of talk about affordability. So Bill 1, the, the first order of business here, the Alberta government is, is introducing the Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act, which basically means uh, the government's making a commitment to Albertans. You let me know if you think this is a good idea or not. Publicity wise, like as a, and I don't want to call it a stunt, But as a move, as a strategy, it's an interesting one. The government's saying, we're going to go to you and ask you if you're okay with us hiking your taxes. If the government perceives or basically looks at the hard facts, is looking at its balance sheet and says, we need more revenue. We believe that we need more revenue from taxes, personal, corporate, otherwise. We're going to put it to a referendum. The people will decide. Now, I don't know how well a tax increase referendum would go for the people cheering for more taxes, especially in a jurisdiction like Alberta. So maybe just maybe this government's nailing its feet to the floor a little bit, cutting back on its options if circumstances change, if Alberta's not in surplus territory anymore. But it's also a promise that the government made to the people, and you know it will play well. Uh, The opposition yesterday kind of rolling their eyes at this. Rachel Notley says basically it's a gimmick. And, of course, there is a lever that the government can pull. You saw the previous premier, Jason Kenney, pull it. You know, you can de-index income taxes uh, if times are tough, right, which bumps them off of inflation. And it can translate to, in a place like Alberta, hundreds of millions of dollars more per year in tax revenue. So there is still an option without going to a referendum. But the government does put itself in an interesting spot. And not just this government, any government to follow. You'd have to reverse this and even the optics of that, right? reversing or dialing back something that was described as a taxpayer protection act would be difficult ground for a premier and a government to tread. And we don't have to tell you that costs have been up for everybody across the country. And in Alberta, people are feeling it as well. I mean, Alberta's energy price increases, we've talked about it on this show before, astronomically higher, exponentially higher than anywhere else in Canada. Groceries are up. Interest rates are up, obviously, so the cost of borrowing is up for people. And insurance premiums, you hear from people. We get emails all the time. Some folks are sending us photocopied PDF proof that their insurance premiums are up. In some circumstances, 300 400%. Now, perhaps the most ardently conservative province in Canada, doesn't have to be a race there, but Saskatchewan... Well, their insurance landscape's a little bit different, right? Government's involved in it. Same with BC, by the way. But in Alberta, there's this free market. 
And a lot of times free markets work for consumers. They work for the people, but that's not necessarily been the case. It's hardly been competitive over the past couple of years. And the throne speech reflected that the government speaking directly to the big companies. Insurance premiums are another cost of living pressure that this government must act on. Albertans can't just choose not to have insurance. They need it for their vehicles and property. And although Alberta's government supports the consumer choices and other advantages that our free market insurance system provides, our insurance industry must understand that when it provides a product that effectively all Albertans are required to have, consumers must be protected from undeserved spikes in the costs of those products. That is why Alberta's government froze auto insurance rates before the end of last year. And it is why when the government lifts that freeze in the new year, it will also implement a series of reforms to limit increases to premiums for drivers who have safe driving records and introduce other changes to assist insurers to keep premiums more reasonable and competitive with the rest of the country on a go-forward basis. Life in Alberta must be affordable for those who choose to live here. And of course, this government knows that more and more people are choosing to live in Alberta. I mean, Alberta is expected to be Canada's second most populated province by 2050. It feels like a long ways away, but not really. Not really. If you think about the fact that people are expecting Alberta's population to be around 10 million people. Can you wrap your mind around that? It's like four and a half. It's just under five million right now. It's crazy. 10 million people. Double. By 2050. What does that mean? Obviously, more housing of all sorts. Obviously, more hospitals, more schools, better infrastructure. I know some people are going to cringe when I say this, but more freeways, more public transportation, more trains. The corridor discussed yesterday, rail from Calgary to Canmore and Banff. I think the Edmonton International Airport would be curious to see what the plans are as well there. You got rail going from Calgary out to the mountains. Edmonton's going to want in on that as well. What does that mean for a, a rail corridor, a passenger rail corridor between Calgary and Edmonton? Lots of talk about stuff like this. And I should note some of the comments in our live chat as well. It's not just the last couple of years that insurance has been going up. Kathy, uh, watching us on YouTube now, says, when I moved here to Alberta from Saskatchewan 11 years ago, her insurance went up $100 a month, more than $1,000 a year. That's a big deal. So you see the government reflecting its awareness that the population is going to grow. They're bullish on that. They're bullish on where the economy is going to go. But if the economy is going to get there, there's going to need to be certain conditions, and they perceive that those conditions can only come about by fighting with Ottawa, and so that's the way it's going to go. What was another big thing that we could take from the throne speech yesterday? I'd be curious to know who wrote it, like the actual specific person that wrote it, and maybe it was a team and maybe it was a collaborative effort, but there was kind of this tone 
that was taken a few times through the speech. I want to give you an example here. And talking about crime, uh, talking about open drug use in the cities and just kind of the, well, you can just imagine it's almost kind of a, a preachy bit of a vibe. It's kind of like a, a condescending, preachy, kind of looking down the nose. Get what I'm saying here? Johnny, let's roll it and we'll talk about it. Albertans are done with allowing further deterioration of public safety on our streets, especially in Edmonton and Calgary. They are done with open-air drug use and unsafe tent cities and criminals being repeatedly released on bail to reoffend. Albertans are tired of the excuses and tolerance for the criminal behavior by those who seem to think that what we see on our streets is acceptable in any way. That is why Alberta's government will provide funding to support the hiring of hundreds of new police officers and introduce multiple justice system reforms to do all that is possible as a province to arrest and put criminals behind bars. <laughs> you see what I'm talking about in that one clip there? We're, we're tired of seeing by those who seem to think that this, it was like. I wonder if that was, that was the one where I was like, I wonder if that was a little hard for her to read. It felt because a, it was kind of like. Snarky. The downtrodden of the street people. Who seem who, to think it's okay. To but you get the idea. The government is, is reflecting and sending the message to the cities that we see what's happening. And we hear you. And more importantly, they're speaking to Albertans, Albertans that say that we're not moving downtown because we don't feel safe or we're not bringing our business downtown because we don't like what we see. We're not riding public transit because we don't feel safe either. Now, some of the stuff that was announced yesterday, so to speak, is, has already been announced. More police officers. That's not a new thing. But there were some new developments as well. We'll talk about those tomorrow with Premier. And, of course, as these conversations continue, an interesting note from Ken, who's watching live, says, you know, how does a provincial government avoid raising taxes? We'll simply cut funding to municipalities. Let them do it. Downloading costs is a simple escape for accountability. Ken's right. And property taxes are another one of the taxes that have been going up a lot. Uh, there are some jurisdictions. Uh, I don't want to name them by name until we have a chance to speak to their mayors, reeves and councils to confirm. But we're hearing that some municipalities in Alberta are looking at 30 percent hikes on property taxes 30 percent to keep up so this is something where the municipalities if they're not going to declare insolvency right basically go bankrupt and let the province take over make it the province's problem this is something that's going to have to be negotiated uh, we're going to talk about the education tax tomorrow and maybe how cities keeping the education tax might work better to, to help municipalities get the funding they need. If you like, you can look back to our September 21st episode, our Alberta Municipalities Roundtable, uh, when then-president of Alberta Municipalities, Kathy Heron, mayor of St. Albert, uh, and now-president of Alberta Municipalities, Tyler Gandum, uh, mayor of Wetaska, and Trina Jones as well. Uh, mayor Trina Jones were in studio talking about this. Now, what was conspicuously, ab conspicuously absent from the throne speech? Everybody's talking about it. Everybody noticed yesterday there was no talk about an Alberta pension plan. But that doesn't mean that that's not part of the government's plan. But it wasn't mentioned even once. 
which I thought was pretty interesting. Yesterday, we got into that with Erica Brudis and Cheryl Oates. If you missed that, we encourage you to check out that episode of Real Talk anywhere you get your podcasts, of course, on our YouTube channel as well. The two of them, Cheryl, former uh, director of comms for Premier Notley, and Erica, founding president of the United Conservatives, former principal secretary for Premier Smith. Uh, So both of them with high-level experience, senior staffers, uh, launching their new show, The Discourse. And we congratulate them on that. We encourage you to subscribe to that on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. And, and don't forget that the first episode of The Discourse comes out this Friday. So they'll have one week of activity, one week of action at the Alberta legislature to comment on. And then episodes of The Discourse will be out every Friday after that. So they're expecting a big population boom. They know that with that comes an increase in crime. Costs are too high. They're worried about energy security and energy stability. Uh, Daniel Smith, I'm sure that we'll talk about this with Premier tomorrow, concerned about the reliability of Alberta and, for that matter, the nation's grid and uh, the Alberta government being very clear about the position that it's taking on making sure that that grid can deliver, talking about expanding natural gas and uh, doing everything they can to make sure that Alberta is able to power up when it needs to. If you have a question you'd like to see the Premier face, if you have an issue you'd like us to tackle tomorrow, you know where to find us. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. I do want to note that there was that outburst at the very end of the throne speech. You heard it. Like the woo. (laughs) This guy stands up in the gallery and he's he's yelling. uh, I don't have it verbatim, uh, but he was yelling, you know, no more oil expansion. We have to stop expanding oil. We have to stop mining coal. Uh, And and it got obviously a bit of a reaction from the speaker, from Nathan Cooper that was in there and from others until he was escorted out. Uh, I I confirmed with them. We thought we recognized the voice. It it was indeed Michael Kalmanovich, who's a a climate activist, and he's the owner of Earth's General Store in Edmonton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sent him a note and I said, Michael, was that you? Was that you at the legislature said was that really mike wanted to confirm i love him so that was him so he so he went up and he had his say and and uh i I saw david kleimenhaga who's you know kind of a a lefty political commentator longtime commentator Mm. tweeted something along the lines of the speech from the gallery was better than the speech from the throne Uh, i think he enjoyed what michael had to say more than that so there was the outburst wanted to to mention that nothing wild happened but uh michael having his say as well and and you got to remember it's it's not just a free-for-all festival seating in there you have to have a ticket you have to be invited no not to at the all throne speech yeah. so i wonder i wonder who planted him in there to make sure they had his say <laughs> you can have your say as well we want to hear from you and our conversations on this of course will continue in the days and weeks to come uh, before we head live to israel i want to let you know this is october 31st which means it's your last day uh to cash in on this grand dog essentials promo for the month of october they've been uh making their chicken veggie raw food available for 16 bucks off each a box using the discount October 2023. Uh, this is the blend that uses entire chicken sourced from Alberta farmers and human grade facilities along with a blend of vegetables. So your pup is getting everything they need. The meat, the bone, the organs provide the foundation for a raw diet. And then the veggies give that additional nutrition from plant-based sources, fiber for gut and digestive health. It's a full meal deal. Again, right now, now 16 bucks off a box with the promo code october 2023 at granddog.ca delivered to your door in calgary edmonton and central alberta if you're trying it for the first time make sure you use the promo code real talk they'll knock 10 percent off your first time order 
Our friends at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge also have a deadline they want you to know about. That's today, October 31st. You can book a stay if you're a first responder. They want to look after you. You do everything for everybody else. It's wildfire season. We've got an opioid crisis. First responders are working around the clock, keeping people with us. And the Fairmont JPL wants to say thank you. So bookings today uh, for October 31st, all the way through till April. But you got to book by today. So you can book your trip in February, March, April. But it's got to be done by October 31st. Qualify for rooms as low as $199 a night, which is amazing for the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. The package also includes 20% off your food and beverage, 25% off Fairmont spa experiences, and 20% off Sundog tours, including transportation to Jasper. That Fairmont Spa, if you've not been in there, is an experience in itself. Well worth the trip. First responders, the Fairmont wants to say thank you. You can reach out to them directly and ask for their first responders appreciation rate. And our friends at California Closets want to remind you that around the year, through the calendar year, it's a great time to check in with their design experts. doesn't matter if maybe you're looking ahead to the spring. You're going to do a big spring cleaning. You're going to finally purge that storage room. Well, if you want to have the setup ready for spring, for getting your space in order, you're going to want to start that free consultation process today. California Closets is transforming bedrooms with watch walk-in closets, kids' closets, Murphy beds, workspaces, like home office. There, I mean, home office options with California Closets are unlike anywhere else. They've got years of experience elevating the game, and they do garages as well. Don't forget, spring cleaning could look a whole lot different with the space transformed by California Closets. You can request that free consultation today at californiaclosets.ca. Yaniv Yakov is living a nightmare, quite frankly, right now. Just over three weeks ago, his brother, his brother's girlfriend, and his brother's two sons, Yaniv's nephews, nephews were kidnapped uh, by Hamas. Uh, the family is awaiting word on their fate. Yaniv is joining us live this morning we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Yanov, where are you exactly? Where are we speaking with you from? Yeah, so I'm I'm in Denyavna. Hello and first thank you for having me. Uh Denyavna is a small town uh in the center of Israel, uh near Ashdod. Uh my my brother was uh living in a kibbutz uh, right near the Gaza Street. Um, he uh, and his girlfriend were on Saturday sitting in their own house, you know, uh, in the morning, sleeping, by the way. And in uh, 6.30, there was a large missile attack, a uh, very big one this time, uh, that was uh, started towards Israel. Uh, at that point, my wife woke me up. Uh, I brought my two kids that are small and asked my big ones, I have four kids, uh, to go down to a safe room. And uh, we have around 45 seconds here to get to a safe room, just for you to, to understand what, what the, does that mean? 
It means that you have 45 seconds to wake up the kids, take them with your hands, go down to a room that is made of uh, uh, concrete, very thick one, a thick wall of concrete all around it. So you could be saved if I miss out, will hit the house or break, break into the house or bomb the house, it doesn't matter. Um, and we ran to that safe room um, and my wife actually called my brother at the keyboard and asked him, yeah, here. are you okay? Are you at the safe room? Did you manage to go to the safe room? In the kibbutz specifically, think about it and try to imagine it. You have seven seconds, seven seconds to run to the safe room. Now imagine yourself sleeping in your bed at your house and try to think how you get to a safe room within seven seconds. In that moment, uh, when she talked to my brother, she asked him, okay, yeah, so you are in the safe room. Where are the kids? And his answer was, uh, I cannot go out until it will, you know, be a little bit relaxed. So I can go and bring them. They are sleeping 200 meters from my house in another house. That's their mom's house. Uh, but as my wife continued talking to him, he said that he even cannot go out because he hears gunshots outside and people speaking in Arabic, which is kind of strange, you know, you're in your house, the most safe place that you can imagine. While you're sitting in your house or sleeping in your house, and in this case, they ran to the safe room, you hear someone coming and shooting outside. And uh, he, he told my wife, he whispered, by the way, so the terrorist outside won't hear him. And he whispered that they are shooting inside the house. After 30 minutes, something like that, at 9.30 in the morning, we got a WhatsApp message from Mayral, his girlfriend, crying for help. She said that my brother was wounded and that he's trying to hold the door while they hear those terrorists shooting. And after a couple of minutes, we got another WhatsApp audio from her crying for help. And her voice went down and down as she was whispering, please call the police, please call someone. Yeah, Niv, I want people to know, sorry to interrupt, but people that are watching this on YouTube or seeing video right now that you have provided to us, we want to be clear what people are seeing. This is video that was released by Hamas, correct? Can you tell us what we're seeing on our screen right now? Yeah, so you're seeing a room. First, you saw the, the, the house from outside. Now you're seeing the room before the safe room, where the terrorists use an RPG missile inside the house to break the door that he was holding in order for them not to get in. Um, and they use an RPG missile 
And I can tell you that we got this movie a day after we lost connection with them. And uh, I always say, I, I can't believe that that was my reaction because my wife came into the room crying, horrified. I was sure she's gonna tell me that my brother was killed. And I went outside so my mom won't see my reaction or their horrifying crying. And I saw the movie and I was actually smiling because I said, this is a good thing. And it's, it's, it's a sign that he's alive. And until now, I, I can't explain uh, how, how, how was I able to even smile when I see this kind of thing. And I'm telling the whole world, try to imagine that. You, you see your brother being kidnapped. And you see people are taking him with guns coming into his house, coming into your home. And I was smiling because that was a sign that he was alive. But but what I'm afraid of, and we, we're seeing it happening all over the world, that those radicals are coming and doing that in other countries. Today it was here, this time it was Israel, but we really believe that the world should understand that it shouldn't happen anywhere and we have to prevent it somehow, I don't know how. That's what I'm trying to do for the past 24 days. Tell my story, tell to the world, be careful to take action and stop this from happening anywhere else and understand that They've taken civilians and children. By the way, the children were kidnapped from the other house. And we know that for sure because their mom, she's my brother's ex-wife, but I always call her my sister-in-law because we're in such a good connection. And she was on the phone with them while Hamas broke inside and took the boys. While they were taking the older one, the little one just cried, please don't take me, I'm too young. And what we're trying to, to tell the world, try to imagine your kids sitting in their house, the safest place, and that someone breaks in, puts a gun into your head, and telling you, we're taking you. I, I I cannot explain, and I know that everybody is saying we we are we can't imagine what's going in 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 your minds or in your soul right now. And yes, we're devastated. We really don't know how to react. Um, we don't know anything about them since that moment. What we ask from the world is please, please take action and make sure that the Red Cross will go in. Check on my brother, check on his kid, check on Mirab. Tell us that they're still alive, that they're not wounded anymore, that they're okay. And just give us some hope because we are devastated. We are broken so hard. 
I am uh, just uh, marvel at the fact that you're able to speak about this right now, Yeniv. I mean, you you provided us with that video, but I can't imagine what it's like for you to watch that video. That's your brother. That's your your brother's partner uh, being held at gunpoint, being kidnapped. I I cannot. I don't have the ability to wrap my mind around how that must make you feel. What? What resources are available to families like yours that right now are in limbo, that are holding out hope steadfastly that their family members will be returned alive, that they are alive now and that you will see them again? What supports are you being provided with? Is there any level of certainty that you've had? Is there communication with government? What's your day-to-day look like? Well... I used to manage, and I'm saying I used to because in the past 24 days, I'm having a new job. But I used to manage 23 people around Israel and all Eastern Europe. So that was my day-to-day. And since that moment, my day-to-day has changed. I've taken a new job. And the job name is Free My Family. Is my role, and my role needs to explain to the world again that this shouldn't happen. The strength that I get comes from my family, my wife, my brother's ex-wife, his daughter that was saved because she was in another house, and from a lot of friends in Israel. A lot of people in Israel are helping. Even people that I don't know just want to help each other, want to support each other. Because if you imagine the numbers that are in this situation, that happened in that situation, all the murders, all the uh, killing, all all the bad things, the kidnap people that happened, there is no family in Israel because we are so small that doesn't have someone that they know that either was kidnapped or was murdered or is so hard to to explain the, the situation, right? Uh, I know that a lot of people try to um, show in percentage what will happen if it was another country in percentage of what happened here. And that's to explain to the world that really this might be in every house if it was in other country, if you measure the numbers. Yes. And um, I can tell you that the government is has provided us with an officer from the army that is really responsible to help us in this situation and support us with this situation. But to tell you the truth, there's no way to really support besides... Uh, uh, giving me resources that I need, for example, if I want to visit the, the, the rescued one, the one that was really saved in a miracle, his daughter, and I want to hug her, and I want to hold her and tell her that everything will be okay, that hopefully they will be back soon. So they give us resources to drive to visit her, um, and meet with her and you know 
to support her because she is with her mom, but she is alone, her dad and her two brothers are not with her. And for us, it's agonizing, right? That we cannot really do anything in order to uh, change the, the, the fact of what happened. And that's why I decided to approach the world. That's why I decided to reach out to every person in the world to help us, help us press on us, help us press anyone we will. We, we strive for information first. We need to know that they are okay. And second, we strive to release them and bring them back home because they're not supposed to be in this situation. They're civilians, they're kids. And they're supposed to be at home safe. Wars can, can happen. I'm not saying that it should happen, but wars are by soldiers against soldiers and not civilians. They shouldn't be part of it. Yaniv Yakov uh, joining us. Um, I want to thank you for showing the courage uh, to talk about this. I'm sure to use your word, an agonizing situation to say the least. And that word barely uh, seems sufficient. Uh, thank you for taking the time. And uh, we're wishing you obviously the best possible outcome in this horrific scenario. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Yaniv. Uh, that's Yaniv Yakov uh, joining us 24 days ago. His brother, Yair uh, Meirav, his girlfriend, and Yair's two sons uh, kidnapped by Hamas. I cannot imagine re receiving a video of your family's kidnapping. I mean, try to put this into perspective. An RPG, like a, a rocket-propelled grenade used to blow open a door, kids, teenagers trying to hold a safe room door shut, armed assailants coming in. Kid, I mean, it's just, I don't even know how you wrap your mind around it. We'll continue our conversations here. We're not going to find an answer at the end of these conversations, but we hope that by speaking with real people, telling us their real stories, what their real life looks like through this horrific situation, this war, that we can come to a better understanding of what it all means and potentially how it may be resolved. Those conversations will continue, as a matter of fact, in just a moment with Justin Ling, who's going to join us. Uh, Justin's one of my favorite writers in the country. He's an independent journalist, an investigative journalist, and, and he's the guy behind the substack, bug-eyed and shameless uh, he's got a piece out just a few days ago, four days ago. I read it from start to finish. Uh, you can't bomb your way to safety. He takes a look at American involvement in Iraq, and he applies that to what's happening right now in Israel and Gaza. That's coming up in just a moment. Friesen Brothers wants to let you know that at the first of the month, of course, that's coming up tomorrow, is 15% off at all 16 of their locations across the province of Alberta. 15% off any grocery purchases of $75 or more, which is a huge deal for families that are looking to save money. They also offer seniors discount days, which are 10% off for seniors, and that depends on the store. 
some of them are on Monday. Some of them are on Tuesdays. We were out in Fort Saskatchewan, Johnny, uh, the Friesen brothers over the weekend. That's in a great Fort one. Saskatchewan. Their Seniors yeah. Day is Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I got to post a video of that. I took the video because their salad bar is like 50 feet long, and then it runs right up to the it's beer so taps. It's so good, eh? The beer taps. I mean, like, unbelievable stuff. So yeah. Friesen brothers, again, circle your calendars, friends. That's coming up on Wednesday 15% of all grocery purchases of $10 or more. All right, we were talking to you about this backyard reveal. We've been so excited to be working with Eden Landscaping and my wife, Carrie. You can follow her on Instagram at Carrie Skelton. Uh, her story right now is like all Eden Landscaping. It's all about our yard. And I want to show this to you. So check this out, Johnny. So if you follow Carrie on Instagram, I've you been can waiting see, for this. you'll see some of our pumpkin carving on there as well. Little Noah Bear. Uh, we're behind on laundry, so little Noah Bear is wearing his uh, Santa pajamas right now. But we're going to take you out into our backyard for a tour, right? So you can check out Carrie's stories and see it all. But look at this, friends. Here it is summed up in 10 seconds or less. Backyard was a mess. I didn't even want to show you guys. I was so embarrassed by how it looked. All that old stone, the yard looked just brutal. And look at this. Wow. Unbelievable. Beautiful. New patio stone. We've got the new artificial turf in there, which is just changing the game with dogs. It's going to look so much better. We're so proud to be entertaining there. We've got some beautiful Japanese lilac trees in there. Can't wait to see those and the hydrangeas bloom in the spring. Mike's told us all about this vision that they've been able to realize here, and we were super thrilled to work with them. You can find Eden Landscaping online if you need a space transformed outside at landscapeedmonton.ca. And also, Complete Care Restoration. I'm not about to talk construction without mentioning Complete Care Restoration. They're the ones that built this studio. They're the ones that got this place looking like it does, and they'd love to do the same for you as well. Uh, Complete Care Restoration built their name. They built their business over the last 10 years, helping Albertans get back on their feet after fires, floods, you know, the discovery of mold or asbestos. What an absolute mess, but that's not all they do. You don't have to have experienced a natural disaster to hire Complete Care Restoration, and if you're like us, wind up thrilled with the outcome. They do construction and renovation projects, new bathroom, new basement, new kitchen, office conversion, no problem. Their team of professionals can take it on. You can start that conversation today by visiting them online at completecarerestoration.ca. New backyard, who this? New backyard, who dis? I see that hot tub bubbling. I'm waiting for the invite. Yeah, buddy, you know it. Okay, yeah, invite will be coming. We'll do okay. like a, we'll do like a spring thing because I'm, I'm looking. For, we've never had. I've always wanted no. lilacs. I'm that was one of the things we said to Mike. December twenty third. Oh, you're talking 245 right now. Two forty five a.m. Okay, sneak in. Hey, buddy. Yeah, we got a lock on the padlock. <laughs> uh, or on the we got a padlock on the hot tub there, bud. Because I've just got too much experience in that regard. If you know what I mean. Um, you know, hey, this show, sometimes we jump around from, from you know, having, having fun and, and chatting about, you know, sort of like the, the lighter side of life and then right back into the serious stuff. Um, and uh, our next guest has the ability to do exactly that as well. I know Justin Ling has made a name for himself across the country uh, as a writer who's, whose thoughts are, are well articulated, as somebody who takes the proper time to, to investigate issues, to look into stories, and then find ways to make them relevant to everyday Canadians. And that's what he's done on his Substack, Bug-Eyed and Shameless, uh, one of his newest works, uh, published October 27th. You can't bomb your way to safety. All you can do is create cycles of revenge. Justin Ling joining us this morning. It's nice to see your face again, man. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What was it? So you people, you, you, you take us back to 
basically the shock and awe campaign, the, the war on terror. I remember this is so such a strange uh, memory of mine to, for context. You know, in grade nine, I think I was at the time. And I remember I had trading cards. They were selling trading cards of like mm. American generals and soldiers and fighter jets. And it's such a, an interesting thing. Uh, how old were you when, when Operation Desert Storm and all that was happening? Oh, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm more of a product of the 2003 invasion yeah, of Iraq yeah. than I am of the of the first Desert Storm. I think I'm a bit younger. Um, but it's funny, you know, I actually, I, I was going to include this in the piece. I, I in the end left it on the cutting room floor, but you may recall that that yeah, they had trading cards for U.S. generals and 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 F-16s and whatnot. But they also had trading cards for Al Qaeda, right? They had Osama bin Laden. I think was the ace of really? spades. Um, yeah, absolutely. And they actually handed them out. They handed. They were actually a utilitarian thing. They handed them out uh, to U.S. soldiers in the battlefield, uh, basically saying, you know, here's how you confirm a capture or a kill. Right. Um, there's a card for Saddam Hussein. There was a card for Al Zawahiri. There was a card for all of these major players in uh, Al Qaeda, in um, the 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 Ba'ath Party, in the Taliban in Afghanistan. And the idea was, you know, if you could, if you can complete the deck well you know it's mission accomplished uh we'll we'll have succeeded in all of our aims uh we'll have delivered um you know freedom to the iraqis and the afghanis and looking back on it now it's so delusional right um to think that you could destroy this movement to think that you could liberate the country just by killing or capturing 52 people is absolute insanity but yeah, that was the mentality we were in at the time. We genuinely believed that conventional military force, that traditional military tactics, that would be good enough to, to bring freedom to the Middle East, to destroy and degrade terrorist capabilities of launching attacks on the West, uh, and to 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 dislodge, you know, this this ideology of evil. And again, in modern times, with the benefit of a decade of hindsight, it just sounds so fantastical. Mm. I, we, we reference this all the time. I mean, it's one of the most probably one of the most famous sort of on the spot quips from any American president ever. You know, George W. Bush there in the smoldering ruins of the World Trade Towers. And and he's there. I think it was probably September 12th of 2000 when he's there um, and you know he's speaking into the bullhorn and the bullhorn kind of thing and and, and uh, he's speaking to the people there the rescue workers who are, are all like getting cancer at the time nobody really realized it what a horrific situation to look back on people working without masks and 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 that gentleman yells from the back we can't hear you and, and of course w yells back famously well i can hear you uh, the whole world can hear you, you know, pretty soon the whole, and pretty soon the people who knock these towers down are going to hear us. And then this cheer erupts. And obviously, uh, because people are angry and heartbroken and in shock. I mean, the fires are still burning, but it kind of created like at that time in, in 01 into 02, 03, this like green light sort of, I guess these days we might call it social license. Uh, for for the Americans to to basically go in and flex to to try to find some sort of of retribution, uh, almost sort of like this this bullish approach, and I'm talking like bull in a china shop type approach to to foreign relations, and and I mean as you write about it in your piece, while it may resonate with a population that's angry or that's that 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 is in, intent and very keen on sending a clear message and preventing something like this from happening ever again, it can prove 
to be an absolute disaster. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I think it's a useful thought experiment. And, and and part of, you know, writing this was a thought experiment, given the situation that Israel finds itself in right now. It's a thought experiment to say, go back to 2001 and really think about what the world should have done, what the U.S. should have done, what Canada, the U.K. and the others should have done. It's hard, I think, to say that the right call was to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. Certainly Iraq, I think we can agree now, was a colossal mistake. But even the invasion of Afghanistan, can we say with any confidence that the world was safer and better off and that the people of New York City and Washington and and the people of America more broadly were better served by that invasion. It was an invasion that managed to not really in any meaningful way destroy al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Um, you know, al-Qaeda actually improved its recruitment in the years that followed. Taliban, the Taliban have returned to power in Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden in a video message uh, a few years after the invasion uh, famously said that 9-11 succeeded beyond all of his wildest imaginations. America managed to bring neither security nor freedom to the region. It managed to bring itself neither security nor safety at home. Um, all it really managed to do was to destabilize the entire region and to uh, radicalize a whole new generation of people who see America as a hostile foreign power and an occupier. Now, that's not to say that the motives behind the military operate, operation were valid, not to say that the objectives were worthwhile, but, you know, pedal to the, you know, you actually put these things into operation and they didn't work. Right. So you go back in time and think, you know, there may have it may have seemed like there was no good options, but it does genuinely seem like we we picked the worst possible option on the table. And, you know, for part of this piece, I wanted to go back and and really dig into the evolution of thinking um, in, in David Petraeus, the guy who uh, commanded briefly forces in Afghanistan, but more particularly um, was the brains behind much of the operation in Iraq and, and later, um, you know, led to the troops surge. Um, he was considered one of the world's sort of preeminent thinkers on counterinsurgency um, and, and, and basically on the uh, ethics and governance of an occupation. Um, his thinking has involved, evolved dramatically. I mean, he was a guy who at the very beginning uh, told the American people and U.S. policymakers that the U.S. military could go in and destroy al-Qaeda and the Taliban and the Ba'ath Party and so on. He genuinely believed that overwhelming conventional military force was enough to destroy an insurgency or terrorism or local opposition. And it was with time that he came to realize that that was a complete mistake. Um, he actually just wrote a book uh, called Conflict, uh, the history of warfare, from, uh, the evolution of warfare from 1945 to the Iraq or to the Ukraine war, um, where he specifically says, you know, without promoting uh, rebuilding, without promoting economic opportunity, without promoting reconciliation, without dealing with a, without building a genuine and 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 um, legitimate uh, governance institution, you can't successfully lead an invasion and occupation of a foreign country. All you can do is promote cycles of insurgency. And I go through all of this to say 
that we learned a lot of lessons over the last 20 years about kind of about what works, but more importantly, about what doesn't work. And I think we should be really, really worried that Israel is about to pursue a very dangerous military operation that is not taking into account any of those lessons. I think it's a military operation that, as it's proceeding right now, risks killing a tremendous number of Israeli soldiers. I think it risks killing untold numbers of Palestinian civilians. I think it risks an enormous blowback on the Israeli population. And I think it risks destabilizing the entire region, pulling in um, Lebanon in particular, but also all surrounding countries into an incredibly dangerous conflict that I think we would do very well to help Israel avoid. So what do you so what do you think, like based on, you know, the David Petraeus school of thought, so to speak, um, what would be an alternative approach for Israel to take? I mean, having just experienced its worst terror attack in the nation's history. Uh, and then obviously also considering the absolute devastation that's happening in Gaza right now as well. There, I, I haven't met a single person that's like totally okay with what's happening in Gaza right now either. What's what's the alternative? So it's, you know, it's difficult because what David Petraeus really tells us based on his own experience is that if you go into a country and you start breaking things, you know, you start blowing holes in buildings, you start using overwhelming air superiority, you start sending in ground forces with modern armor um, to lay waste to your enemy's capabilities of waging war. If you do all of that and you are unwilling or incapable of rebuilding and providing security and safety and hope and optimism for the people uh, who have been impacted by that operation. If you are incapable of creating legitimacy in the democratic institutions or even potentially non-democratic institutions that will survive that operation or will be built up during it, if you cannot actually liaise with and earn trust from the population nearby, you are going to create more problems for yourself that you cannot solve. And I think that's really you know, I think I think uh, Petraeus markets a lot of this as a way of, of of achieving invasion and occupation sort of ethically and effectively. But I think on the counter side, it also is a stark warning that if you can't guarantee those things, you shouldn't be going to war in the first place. And I don't think Israel can guarantee those things. And I don't think Israel should be going to war. I think that is what we have learned in very stark terms over the last few decades. Israel is going to go into Gaza with a plan of trying to kill and capture as many Hamas senior leaders as it possibly can. It's going to aim to destroy rocket uh, stockpiles and rocket uh, launching uh, positions. And more particularly, it's going to look to destroy and degrade as many of those underground tunnels underneath the city as it humanly can. There's a problem with that. So much of that infrastructure sits on top of, next to, or inside critical civilian infrastructure, hospitals, schools, uh, homes. That is done by design. Israel, sorry, Hamas is looking to increase the costs to Israel exponentially as it continues this war. And those costs are going to make it impossible for Israel to work with the people of Palestine. It's going to make it incredibly easy for Hamas to radicalize and recruit those living in Gaza into their own suicidal campaign against Israel. All of everything, every component piece of this operation is going to continue the conflict in Gaza and Israel into the foreseeable future. Mm. The only way I think we can avert, avert 
further violence, further cycles of retribution, uh, and further attacks on Israeli and Palestinian civilians is by pulling back from the brink, is by figuring out a process to actually do all of those things Petraeus describes, building uh, necessary civilian infrastructure, building a genuine political system that gives an alternative to Hamas, um, you know, providing hope uh, and actual uh, quality of life to the people in the Gaza Strip. That is the only conceivable way I think that I can see and that many other people can see that will ultimately break Hamas's stranglehold on the Gaza Strip, that will ultimately provide for justice for those lives that were lost on October 7th, and that will provide long-term security uh, for Israel. Because the way Israel is prosecuting this war right now is only going to deepen that cycle of retribution. Uh, we're talking to Justin Ling in our live chat. Heidi says, I really appreciate Justin's points right now. She says the violence upon violence is just going to further radicalize people. Justin says, this is so interesting. Um, is this something that we just learned or something we're relearning? He says, it strikes me that after many wars throughout history, a big part of things after the wars were reparations and lifting up. You know, that's a great point, Justin, uh, that he makes. Uh, back to you, Justin. Uh, I, I wanted to, it's always weird to read someone's piece yeah. to them. To them. Uh, I'll read a little bit of your words to you because I'd like the audience to hear it. If you haven't yet uh, read it, you can subscribe to and support uh, Justin online at bugeidenshameless.com. That's where you'll find this piece. Um, you said you talk about the IDF, uh, Israeli Defense Forces, and their three-phase war plan. We're in the first phase now. You say second phase could begin at any moment. I know people are holding their breath there. You say, but no victory waits for Israel in Gaza. We know that insurgency cannot simply be crushed, uh, particularly not one so entrenched or so ingrained in the psyche of a people. Even if the IDF can sweep in and kill every single member of Hamas in 10 hours, It'll have guaranteed the future of the insurgency for another 10 years. And that is a gargantuan if. And I think about, you know, people are talking about, I mean, we just spoke of the man right before you, whose brother, his brother's girlfriend and his two nephews are, he's hoping still alive, kidnapped. Um, I can't imagine what it's like for, for anybody in that circumstance. But in particular, you think of children. And then I, I, I can't fathom the death toll of civilians in Gaza. I can't fathom the number of children that have been killed. It's, it's one of the world's great tragedies. Um, and you think, and I, and I see this news footage. I'm not saying anything profound here, Justin, but this is how it strikes me, is I look at footage and I see a six-year-old boy hmm. weeping that his mother and father were killed by a missile attack. And then you think of the, the, the range of emotions, the trauma, the anger that this young man is going to grow up with and how that will be channeled. And it's like, this is not going to fix itself. I mean, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, listen, the people of Israel are hurting and understandably so. The people of Israel are angry and they want justice. But the the luxury of being an Israeli is that you have a democratic process. You have a political voice. You have power. You have recourse through the international courts, through international diplomacy, through um, through through your own uh, domestic channels and, and apparatuses. The people of Palestine don't have that recourse. They have no option other than Hamas, right? Hamas um, won a plurality of uh, a ostensibly democratic election in 2006 and has spent um, the more than 15 years since then uh, killing its political opponents and seizing total control of the Gaza Strip. There is no uh, autonomy. There's no self-determination for the Palestinian people. 
And to some degree, that means they are at the, the the whim of Hamas. But to some degree, it also means they have no other choice for their frustration and their anger. When their family members die or are killed, when their homes are bombed, when their hospitals are destroyed, they have no recourse. They have no international diplomatic opportunity. They have no recourse to, to obtain justice, to, to negotiate peace, to sue for peace. All they have is Hamas. Hamas is their only option. And that is by design. Hamas exists to deny options to the, to the uh, Palestinian people. It exists to, prov- to provoke cycles of violence. It exists to entice Israel into a war that kills their own civilians because this is Hamas's power. And Israel needs to figure out a way to deny that power. And it, I, that's fundamentally where this has to go, I think. If you really want to do right by the people who have been hurt in Israel, if you really want to do right by the people of Palestine who want another option, you have to find a way to deny Hamas's exclusive power over the Gaza Strip. And that's really difficult. It's really unbelievably difficult. It's going to have to require dealing with Qatar, who has become one of their chief financiers. It may have to require dealing with Iran, which is one of the the major patrons. Yeah, I was going to say of, Iran is like the, I mean there's a, there's a lot of wild cards, but Iran is like the biggest wild card. But at the same time Iran does not want to provoke a conflict that's ultimately going to lead to potentially an Israeli or American invasion of their territory because it won't survive it. Mm-hmm. Um Iran is incredibly in an incredibly tenuous position right now. Its own people are trying desperately to rid themselves of the autocratic theocracy that have has destroyed their opportunity for decades. Right? Iran is not um a a, a sure thing. Iran is not in a terribly secure position right now. Israel needs to figure out how to explore all of those possibilities in the region to promote its own security and to destroy Hamas uh, through a political diplomatic process. It won't do so militarily. It will only recreate those cycles of radicalization and and recruitment and ideological um, uh, indoctrination of the Palestinian people. It needs to figure out an alternative here. Um, and, And countries like Canada can help with that. Countries like the US, the Quint, can help with that. The international community can push Israel into those um, more effective channels. Um, Because the reality is Israel does have a right to defend itself. It does have a right to promote security and safety for its people. It does have a right and even an obligation to pursue justice for those who died. Um, But we have to be able to communicate to Israel when its efforts to achieve those goals are self-defeating and even self-harming. And I think that's what we're looking at right now. I, I like how you've, you've organized your writing and I encourage people to check it out. You, you break it into parts, you know, part five, not victory, but peace. Uh, and that kind of resonated with that. I sat there with this thought about that, not victory, but peace. And you basically say that, you know, the really the only option there is a negotiated ceasefire. Um, we've been we talked about this a little bit. Charles Adler was on the show yesterday and, and his take. Basically, I mean, he, he can speak in his own words, doesn't need me to paraphrase. But he basically said, like, show me a war where there's been a ceasefire in three weeks. Uh, you know, maybe there are some small examples, but not many. Um, the NDP, really the only federal party in Canada that's been calling for a ceasefire. Right. I mean, um, the Americans sure aren't the pope <laughs> yesterday on Twitter called for a ceasefire. I mean, I mean if so, does that is that the American president that's got a call for it with with Britain and, and a few others. I mean, how, do you see it happening? Is it possible? Yeah. Listen, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't think the Americans are going to call for it, nor will the Brits, no. nor will the French or the German, well, the French maybe. Um, 
Because I, I think the reality is their their position of power is being a confidant to Israel. And that that's a really important and useful position to be in. We've already seen success from the White House in encouraging Israel to, to show some restraint and to pause its military operations, allowing for some humanitarian aid to arrive in Gaza. That's really powerful, and America should not sacrifice, frankly, that power. It should probably use more leverage than it currently is to encourage um, Israel to to think twice about this operation, but the reality is the calls for ceasefire have to come from a party that is actually not powerful in the process, and that's Canada. We have really no position in the current state of things. Um, the Prime Minister hasn't even spoken to Benjamin Netanyahu since October 8th. We're not an important player, despite what Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie might pretend to, to, to suggest, like she did yesterday. Um, the reality is it's going to require a, a diplomatic uh, pressure campaign and one that recognizes Israel's concerns instead of downplaying them. There have been groups that have called for a unilateral ceasefire that have you know, even gone so far as to say that Israel should start making concessions. Uh, immediately. And I think it's completely fantastical. I think it's completely absurd. Israel is not going to pull back and then suddenly uh, open uh, the blockade and allow Hamas to, to smuggle in more goods to make rockets. That is just a fantastical position. What Israel can do is use the threat of military action to to elicit concessions. Those concessions have to come from potentially the Palestinian Authority, from Qatar, uh, maybe from Egypt to allow more uh, more uh, goods to go through the, the border off the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, like I said, potentially from, from Iran. I mean, the U.S. has just struck Iranian positions in Iraq. They are in a good position to elicit concessions for Iran right now. I think Iran is actually freaked out. It didn't, as best we can tell from some of the intelligence that's come up publicly, it didn't fully know the extent of Hamas's operation operation on October 7th. It may well be looking for a solution to decrease tensions and to de-escalate the area. So there are a lot of good reasons reasons to think that there are good processes and good progress that could be made. Israel also needs to do this with an eye of saying there can be a political victory somewhere in the future. Hamas is not your only option. It needs to give people in Palestine, it needs to give the Palestinian Authority, everybody else in the region, a, a recognition. There are two paths ahead. One is sticking with Hamas. One is continuing to arm and finance Hamas. And that route ends in tragedy. Mm. The other is denying Hamas those opportunities, trying to take away some of that political power from Hamas. And that road ends with the negotiated two-state solution. It may not be in two years, it may not be in 10 years, it may not be in 20 years, but you have to give people, you have to give the regional players some hope that that is the end goal. And unfortunately, Benjamin Netanyahu has for years done everything he can to try and decrease the likelihood of that two-state solution. There are people in this coalition who have repeatedly talked about uh, destroying any hope for a two-state solution. It's time for actual political leadership in Israel that, that puts that back on the table, that brings hope back, because that is the only way you're going to see long-term security for Israel. Yeah, I've seen comments in the live chat about, about Netanyahu preserving his own political legacy here. Uh, Justin, before we let you go, I just I just wanted to recognize that I, I liked your note right at the end of your piece. Um, you know, you, you thank people for reading it. You, you remind them they can subscribe to your Substack and support your journalism, and we encourage everybody to do so. But you, you, you include a note that says that this was a therapeutic effort for you to get your own thoughts in order. And I've found the same thing. And I think our audience has reflected this as well, is that we're, we're not necessarily we, we, we didn't, you know, solve Yaniv Yakov's uh, horrific nightmare 
40 minutes ago by talking to him about his brother who's kidnapped. Um, but I think that we provide, I hope, a bit of an outlet for him. Uh, we provide an outlet for ourselves. The audience can congregate and come together and talk about this because I think so many people are so torn up by this around the world. And, and, and I appreciated you noting that that includes you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, and I've been trying to do this for the past few weeks. I wrote a, a sort of a treatise on um, on the nature of terrorism a couple of weeks ago. And there was this one really instructive bit um, in a book by a guy, a guy named uh, Irman Collins. He's a former provisional IRA uh, fighter and assassin. Um, he left the PIRA in the early 90s. Um, went to prison for a while. He ended up turning state's witness, ended up becoming an advocate for the peace process. Um, he describes this moment in Northern Ireland that I thought was really instructive. And it was a moment after some of the worst atrocities that had been committed during the Troubles. You know, we often think about peace processes as coming at the end of sort of a decline in hostilities. And the reality is it's almost always the opposite. Peace processes come when things are at their absolute worst. So Collins describes this moment after a the IRA had bombed a chip shop um, in a, a Protestant neighborhood, the the some Protestant militias responded by bombing and opening fire on Catholic pubs and restaurants, and the death toll was horrific. The the, the number of civilians dead uh, in Northern Ireland was unspeakable, and Collins described this moment. I'm quoting loosely where he says, you know. It is to the enormous credit of both the Republicans and the Loyalists that they walked up to the to the brink, looked over the edge, and decided to walk back. And I thought that was really interesting because that's kind of what we all have to do. We all have to look over that edge and think to ourselves, what lays down there? We can't just blindly run off because we're emotional and angry and hurt. We have to look over that edge, think about what comes next, and consider whether or not we want to pay those, those costs. Justin Ling is a national newspaper award-winning independent journalist. Uh, you can support his work uh, by subscribing. I, lo I lost that award, so I'm actually a national newspaper award losing journalist. What? Well, yeah. I, I okay, I got called on my bullshit there because I'm just looking at what's on the shelf behind you, and it appears yeah. to be, what is it? What is that, a nominee page? Yeah, consolation prize. Consolation. Well, shit, sorry, man. Uh, beer's on me next time you're in our studio. How's that? That's good. If it makes you feel any better, we've lost a whole bunch of awards on this show, Johnny, haven't we? Yeah, just recently in Ampia. So, yeah, we recently yeah. lost two Ampia. Two Ampia. We, we lost two Alberta Motion Picture Industry Awards. So, yeah. Hey, bud, in all seriousness, uh, have a huge amount of respect for your journalism and a huge amount of appreciation for what you do. Um, I'm calling on Real Talkers to subscribe to support what Justin's doing at bugeyedandshameless.com. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Yep, you got it. See, that's a fact check right there from a journalist who cares. He calls me mm -hmm. on it. He says, no, as a matter of fact, I did not win that national well, newspaper we were, awards. We, we were both looking. I could see you straining, too. I was squinting. I was reading that the, the, the framed photo. I'm, and it, I'm like, we better yeah. mention it, but then, you know. Well, a national newspaper award nominated journalist, uh, Justin Ling. But to bring it back to the point. Um, it's an honor. Just bang on nominated. analysis. And I really appreciate the way that he's organized this and the way that he talks, right? It's not like this is a nightmare situation. It's a nightmare. Um, it's horrific. Mm -hmm. Thousands of people have died. Thousands more are going to die. I hate to put it that way, but that's a fact. And I can see that the, the way that Justin approaches storytelling, the way mm -hmm. that he approaches his journalism um, has, has brought out the best in the conversation in our audience. 
you know mm-hmm. and uh you know like heidi goes on she continues says like when does israel determine that it has successfully disbanded hamas right Mm-hmm. Um, she wonders how far does Israel go before other countries step in? How many more civilians have to die before they do? I mean, I'm not a, you know, we bring experts on the show cause I'm not that expert, but I would say that the United States, uh, you know, Britain, Canada, you know, Germany that would never step in on Israel Mm-mm. ever, ever. Mm-mm. Uh, and so countries stepping in might be, you know, countries like Justin mentioned, I mean, you know, um, Lebanon or others, but then at, at, at risk of what? You've got American warships in the area. They're already You've got, I mean, it's like, it, it, I can't imagine the tensions. Like we talked, you know, for example, talking to Yaniv here earlier, and, and we have more interviews. We're always working on interviews and stuff happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you think when you talk to somebody that's there, uh, Kinnaird Osri that joined us a couple of weeks ago as well, um, you know, you think of like the tension that they must feel um, you know, rockets are flying and they're going, had taking their families into safe rooms. And I just can't even wrap my mind around how tense that situation is right now. Well, I know we talk about it every day on the show, but it's hard. Like when we go home after and I watch the footage and I watch the news every night. Yeah, it really hits home. But I love Justin's article because I think he says and he articulates what we're all thinking, which is exactly the title. Like. There is no way that one side or the other, there's no way that Israel can just bomb and bomb and bomb and then one day, like, the sky clears and the sun comes out. Mm. There is no way that you can bomb them to safety. And I like how we talked about Iraq as well. You're just making more people mad and future generations to fight and fight and fight forever. Yeah, perpetuating that extremism. And, and like, you know, I, I, I talked about the hypothetical 10 minutes ago about the six-year-old Palestinian boy that sees his parents killed. And and I saw there was, Boom, a, there, was, a, there, was a, there was a great chat in the uh, great comment in the chat from somebody. I think it was Jan who said that six year old is now 26 and fighting. You're mm-hmm. watching 2005 all over again. Uh, Aaron watching. She says he's 100 percent correct. It all sucks. Um, you know, yeah. So you, you can let us know what you think. I mean, we do. We just really want to you know, we've we've had some we read that email from Mahmouda yesterday that, mm-hmm. was, that was taking Charles Adler to task. And, and I sure appreciated uh, what she brought to the table. And then, of course, Adler had a chance to respond to it. Yeah. We want this to be a forum um, for you to know that you can have your say. Uh, we want this uh, to be a forum, a, a place where you can explore different ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope driven by empathy uh, an insight and, and, and intellectual yeah. commitment to truth um, and I like, the pursuit of that. I like how he put some clarity on also, like like everyone's like, well, they voted in Hamas. Well, someone who's like, that was almost 20 years ago. And they, they've clearly like taken power and power and killed their enemies there who have tried to get political power. So, you know, a kid who's 16, 17, 18 years old, they didn't vote Hamas in. They yeah. grew up in this in this prison what's the validity of those elections in the first place so when people they make it like it's so recent like we're talking about 2005 here sylvia says emotions are so high between israelis and palestinians already it guarantees future conflict uh netizen says justin ling what a great guest it was good to have somebody talk about context in this situation yeah i thought that was interesting the whole story about general david petraeus and everything uh, again put it this way bug and shameless.com is where you can read the piece uh, it takes about 15 minutes to read it it's amazing um, and we encourage you to subscribe and support his journalism i wanted to mention something to, to those of you that are uh, business owners and uh, you could be a small business like us or you could be a, a bigger business there's uh, an initiative out here we're not selling you anything 
anything. This is free. Okay, this is a free initiative. It's the Digital Economy Program uh, that's helping build the online presence of small to medium-sized business in the Edmonton metro region and surrounding areas. So if you're a registered business in the province of Alberta with fewer than 50 employees, like 49 or less, you're eligible for this program. We've done it already. It's free and it's fantastic. Business students at the U of A work as consultants helping business owners boost their digital literacy uh, with how to do everything from creating a Google profile to building a Shopify or Etsy e-commerce website or even setting up Facebook ads. So here's how it worked for us. Basically, I had a quick meeting with the team. Uh, These are some of the sharpest students I've ever met. And they basically said, what do you need? How can we help? They they audited our setup, Johnny. They looked at our website. They were like, your website's pretty damn good. We said, tell us something we don't know. But they looked at our social media. They said, social media is pretty good. We said, yeah, we know. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Uh, And then then they worked. And and Johnny, they put together this audit for us. Mm -hmm. And it was like a 20-page invaluable document that talked to us about SEO, like search engine optimization, and how we can better organize our uh, our website for mobile use. We know exactly approximately, but, but pretty close. We know how many of you are watching or listening to or accessing Real Talk, for example, off our website, but on your phones. It has to look different than on a desktop, right? You know all this stuff. Well, we're learning all this by working with these students. This is funded by the government of Alberta in partnership with Business Link, Digital Main Street and the University of Alberta. Now, the program runs until October 1st of next year, so you've still got 11 months to do it, but like, why wait? Sign up today at yourdep.ca. Did I mention it's completely free? You literally have nothing to lose if you're a business with fewer than 50 employees in the province of Alberta. Visit yourdep.ca today to connect with the U of A's digital economy program, a quarterbacked by the U of A's Center for Cities and Communities. Also wanted to give a big shout out to our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. I'm, I'm always letting you know that they're hiring. And of course, you know that they're Canada's fastest growing solar installer. But I just want you to follow them on Instagram. Their Instagram is fantastic. You'll find them there at Kubi Energy. And I know I've shown this off a couple times already, Johnny. I think I just love watching it. The video of the panel installation that they did on this new Windermere Fire Hall. It's the first net zero fire hall in the province. Look at this. The undulations of the roof, the curves, the cleanliness of that install. Really, really beautiful. That could be your house. That could be your barn. That could be your cabin. That could be your commercial building. Whatever it is, Kubi does it all. You can get a free quote today by checking out kubienergy.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's Real Talk, we hope that you'll join us live at 8.30, right out of the gates. The Honorable Danielle Smith, Premier of Alberta, will join us in studio. We've got her for about 25 minutes. We're going to fit in as many questions as we can about the throne speech, about the pension plan, about the fighting with Ottawa, about the deficits that municipalities are looking at, about Alberta booming to 10 million people and a whole lot more. If you'd like to put something in front of us before that interview, send us an email right now to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. 
Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.